This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And here he is, Chief Economist for Windermere Real Estate, Matthew Gardner. So let me ask you the, the question I've been asking anytime I get an economist on the air. The job numbers look great. <laughs> the growth numbers look great. And here we are, you know, looking forward to a recession. So what's going on? Uh, good morning, David. It, and it is fascinating. I mean, the 517,000 number um, was a huge surprise. I think it's one of the biggest misses that any economist had in a long time in terms of the forecast. There's a couple of reasons for it. One of which is is January and uh, the numbers are seasonally adjusted and January is notorious for being bad once you start messing with the seasonal adjustments. But if you look at the unseasonally adjusted numbers, well, the country lost 2.3 million jobs. So uh, that's why seasonality is so important, but it is notoriously bad. However, that said, uh, it, it was still far more robust than anyone had expected. So that's the there's a good and a bad about that. Uh, the economy clearly is not slowing down at the speed the Federal Reserve would like to see it. We still hear that the vacancy rate in uh, Seattle office buildings is really high, like above 50 percent, right? Well, that's, yeah, that last time I checked, it was uh, getting closer, depending on how it's calculated. Uh, we haven't yet seen the number of people coming back to the office that I think a, a lot of uh, business owners would like to see. And I think a lot of them are actually waiting for the economy to slow down a bit more, which means that can give them, ideally, the leverage. The more leverage, yeah. To, to get people to come back. Uh, clearly hasn't happened yet. Now, is, is Seattle at a disadvantage because of the whole, uh, you know, public civility thing? Or are other cities like Bellevue... Uh, or Portland seeing the same thing. I think everybody's seeing the same thing. However, that is, talk about civility, that certainly is a part of the rationale for workers not wanting to come back. Well, not wanting to come back and being made to are two different things. So I, I think it's certainly part of the equation. There is no doubt. Very specifically, I'd say more here in Seattle than it would be in Bellevue. We know it's bad in San Francisco. We know it's bad in Portland as well. So it's not just us. And uh, But I think as we go through the course of this year, we are going to start seeing more workers coming back into their offices. Good. I hope so. I don't know if you watched the, the 747 ceremony uh, last week, but I did. I found it fascinating. And it was actually surprisingly upbeat the way the executives were talking about the future of aerospace. Do you agree with that? Oh, I, actually, I do. And there's a couple of reasons why. One of which is we need to replace the global fleet of planes over the course of the next 20 to 25 years anyway. That's point one. Point two is well, Boeing's competition has always been Airbus, uh, which has been, in essence, funded to the greater degree by the ECB, by the European Union. It's unfair. Back. Exactly. Ah, well, the, Europe is having some of the issues that we're having here as well. Their checkbooks aren't quite as wide open as they used to be. And that can certainly put Boeing into a better position, arguably, uh, in terms of the uh, being able to compete w with Europe. Is it a good thing? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to keep on flying. Some new orders are coming in, is my understanding. That's a positive. I think they want to put another line up in Everett. I believe uh, they made right. that announcement last 737, week. 737, yeah. Right, right. So I think it's not all doom and gloom. The question really, I, I think, for a lot of people is going to be, well, where are these planes going to be built? Mm -hmm. Will they be built here or will they be built uh, in South Carolina? What do you Carolina? think? I mean, do we still maintain an advantage or is Boeing going to continue to spread out its uh, bets? I think we still maintain an advantage. I, I think uh, not just from the qualifications of the workforce, 
Uh, I think that they've got some ability here, given the land mass that they own and also control what's going on around them. And that, there's a lot of compelling reasons why I think it will be here. Let's talk housing market. Yes, sir. So uh, where are we at now since we're in this sort of uh, limbo between uh, growth and uh, and recession? What do you see home prices doing? Well, right now, uh, home prices are certainly down. I mean, year over year, they're up in King County, down modestly in, in Pearson, Snohomish. However, I always caution when you look at the year over year numbers. Uh, housing is not exactly fungible, I mean, not easily tradable. And therefore, to compare uh, literally this month to this month, rather than looking at it on an annual average, which I think is a better way to look at it. If you just do that compared month uh, month to the same month the prior year, well, come April and May of this year, looking back uh, a year a year ago, it's going to be the numbers going to be horrible. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. So what am I looking at? Uh, I think we've seen certainly a lot more homes for sale than we've seen in the last several years. I mean, up almost 200% here in the Puget Sound. However, if you go back to the last uh, pre-COVID year, real year, well, the number of homes available for sale is actually still down by more than 30%. Wow. So, uh, again, you've got to be very careful to uh, not look at the artificially uh, sugar-induced years we had through COVID because mortgage rates were artificially low with what was real. So there is more some choice of buyers. That's a good thing. Home price growth, certainly home sellers, we're seeing list prices soften. Done surprising, given that mortgage rates are still significantly higher, although we did break below 6% uh, on a 30-year fixed mortgage for one day last week, <laughs> last Thursday, uh, because of what was going on with the ECB and with the Fed raising That's what it's costing rates. now for a mortgage, 6%? Yeah, uh, actually a bit more than that now. So wow. it dropped down below 6 uh, because of Fed announcements and, and ECB and the Bank of England. However, the job number came out the next day. Mortgage rates jumped by almost a quarter point. Uh, because the economy obviously wasn't slowing down. And that has an impact on mortgage rates because that has an impact uh, given moves I- in the bond market. So do you see uh, enough of a uh, – has it gotten expensive enough that some people are actually changing their plans, whether it's you know baby boomers putting off the downsizing or young couples staying in the apartment for a little bit longer before buying a house? Well, I think there's two different reasons there, one of which is it, it is still very expensive, even yeah. though we've seen prices drop down. So for a first-time buyer, yeah, it's going to be hard. Uh, But I think more than anything else, uh, it could be interesting to see over the next year or so how many people move because they are currently sat on a mortgage rate below, let's say, 3%. If they bought or if they refinanced through COVID, they've got a remarkably historically low mortgage rate. Now, we will see people move for the, the three classic reasons, job change, death and divorce. But outside of that, moving by choice when mortgage rates have doubled, I just don't think we're going to see the churn yeah. in the market this year that you'd normally expect to see. That should get easier next year as mortgage rates, in my opinion, will continue to drop down modestly uh, and get close to that 5% mark. What's the outlook for rents? Uh, Ram, fortunately, uh, the positive is that the uh, rent increases will be lower. The negative is they're still going up. Really? Yeah. So uh, we haven't seen uh, much of a shift in, in that respect, but certainly compared to the last couple of years where we saw double digit rental rate increases, we're down in a far more modest mid single digit range today. However, as we go through the year, we are going to see a lot more units coming online go back to basic supply and demand. So I think we're going to see uh, that pace of growth continue to erode. I'm not saying it's going to turn negative. I don't see that happening. Because, uh, again, because of home prices, even though they've come down, we're creating a more, I'm afraid, more forced renters. 
that would like to buy it oh, can't afford it. Good point. Right. And so they're kind of stuck, stuck in, there, in limbo. Yeah. Windermere Chief Economist Matthew Gardner. Thank you, Matthew. David, always a pleasure. Take care. Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. Yes, we touched a nerve last week with the possibility of eliminating free right turns at red lights. So here's another nerve. Traffic signals are about to go active between I-90 and I-5 in Seattle. Let's go to Chris for details on that. And my inbox exploded over the last 10 <laughs> days. It is full of drivers asking me what is going on with the traffic signals between I-90 and I-5. And I knew in an instant that the ramp meters must have gone up. This is something that I've been talking about for years, that the Washington Department of Transportation plans to better control the traffic flow on the northbound I-5 by putting ramp meters on the collector-distributor lanes. I talked to project engineer Sean Went to explain the reasoning. It helps the congestion in that you don't just dump everybody all on all at once. It's kind of regulated and it's kind of like a valve, right? You're slowly opening that valve um, through that area. The most common question I received from listeners last week is how can the state put a traffic signal in the middle of the freeway? Well, first, you have to understand that it's not a freeway at that point. It is a ramp between two freeways that also happens to include a bunch of dedicated off-ramps to James and Madison. No, that doesn't make any difference to you, but that's how WashDOT defines the area. It's not necessarily a signal in that you're going to be stopping there, uh, like, say, at an intersection. It's more of like what you would see on on just a regular on-ramp, but it's just a big on-ramp. It's a big on-ramp. It's not the freeway. Keep that in mind. So here's how it's going to work. The ramp meters are just north of the James off-ramp. You'll hit them coming from eastbound and westbound 90 if you're continuing on to northbound I-5 and if you're heading to Madison. There are three lanes at that spot. Eventually, there will be, and those ramp meters will then help regulate the lanes onto I-5 northbound. Watch.s Amy Moreno wanted to make it very clear during my interview with, with Sean that this will only be active during the big congestion times. Just don't want people picturing that they're coming on I-90 at, you know, 10 o'clock at night and it's not going to be on when there's not traffic. It only happens during peak times. Now, the traffic center up in Shoreline will be able to change the signal timing in real timing to make the flow as efficient as possible. Wentz says the lights will go active in a couple of months. Late spring, early summer is when they're going to restripe everything into its final configuration um, and then those lights will, will go on permanently. The traffic center, as I said, will be able to keep track of that. So it's time to start prepping for this. You've got a couple of months to get your mind ready for this. This isn't, of course, the only change WashDOT is making in the area. It is also converting the Seneca exit on northbound I-5 from an exit-only lane to a through lane. So you'll still be able to exit, but the lane won't stop there. Engineers are using the shoulder areas to create 1,500 feet of new lane. That will mean three lanes will actually continue northbound I-5 under the convention center. So that is a plus. Washdots Moreno says the project has the potential to transform traffic through Seattle. This will be so huge when it all opens up, when it's done. It really could 
impact traffic flow in downtown Seattle for years to come. Expect some overnight closures next week to work on the striping under the convention center. There will also be a ramp meter added to the cherry on ramp. So you'll get through the signal and then you'll have another one before you get onto the freeway. Uh, What do you guys think of the idea? Hit us up on the state roofing text line 888-973-5476. Have your passenger text us about losing that direct access. Of course, most days during the congestion times or after games anyway, you're not really moving anyway. This will actually help move you a little bit better. But yeah, I want to know what you guys think of this. So that's officially the only traffic signal on I-90 between here and Boston, right? Quite possibly now that they moved uh, it out of Wallace, Idaho. Uh, Remember, it used to go through downtown Wallace, and that was the last time. But yeah. That's been gone a long time. Yeah, it has. (laughs) I drive over that part frequently. But yeah, it's very interesting. But again, you have to understand the rationale from the DOT that this isn't a freeway. It's a ramp, right? A really big. So that's ramp. not officially I ninety. No. So the, the so the last traffic signal on I ninety would be at what Edgar Martinez. Edgar Martinez, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so this is something that you're going to start encountering uh, probably the, for the first time coming out of a Mariners game in the spring or late summer when this goes active. But uh, they do believe that this will make things better. I know you're going to have to stop there, but the goal here is to make I five northbound yeah. more efficient. Well, three lanes through downtown. That, that should be a game changer. Yeah, it right? should be. And again. What will that will also then do is prevent that late merge from the people who are crossing against the double uh, there at Seneca, who know you know drive up on the far left side at the Seneca off ramp and then dart over to, to right. one of the two through lanes because now that lane will go through, so that'll cut back on some of that. People will still be using the uh, you know the express lanes illegally and jumping over at the last minute against the double white line there too. But this should definitely help to get another through lane through the convention center. Yeah, that should definitely impact what we see daily. And, and when is, it, and when is that uh, finished again? Uh, sometime late spring, early summer, depending on uh, mm-hmm. when they get their work done. Uh, they got to do a lot of striping. They've got to add some signal, uh, some you know stanchions to put some more lights and signage up. But yeah, those signals are there. Uh, people see them every day, and that's what's happening. The state senate heard four different proposals to fix the state's drug possession law. All the testimony on it was packed into one hearing. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich to explain all this. Matt, good morning. Good morning, Dave. Day 30 of the 105-day session, if you're counting. Um, Yes, the Blake decision bills. Um, The Blake decision was the Supreme Court decision about two years ago that basically ruled our drug possession law in this state is unconstitutional. Therefore, it left no no penalties at all for possessing any illegal drug. Um, so what they did in the meantime last year, they had a fix that basically made it a misdemeanor uh, offense if you had an illegal uh, possession. Uh, but officers must offer the person twice, not once, but twice, treatment before they issue any crime, uh, issue any uh, uh, citation. And that bill expires in July, and then we would go back, if nothing, if there isn't a fix, we would go back to it, to nothing. There would be no drug possession law. So they put all four of these bills, which are super important. I mean, we're up there with the police pursuit bill in terms of importance right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they put them all in one two-hour hearing. And again, a, fam- a familiar name in all this, uh, Senator Mankadunga, it's her committee, and she put them all together in one two-hour hearing. And the lineup to talk was out the door. Uh, so just to 
you know, UW addiction recovery expert Caleb Banda Green basically described the importance of these bills. This is a once in a generation opportunity to fix this broken non system. And this is kind of the feeling of what started all this. Uh, Democratic Senator Jesse Solomon described what he saw one day with his son. Two people had taken a couch, set it up on the sidewalk in the middle of a residential street in Seattle, spray painted on it, and were using fentanyl in the daylight on the sidewalk in the middle of a residential area in front of a daycare. If that is not problematic, I don't know what is. So that's what got us to this point. Mm -hmm. So what are the proposals? Let's just think of it as a carrot and a stick kind of a comparison. Proposal one uh, is a carrot with a huge stick. Republican Senator Mike Patton wants to make possession of illegal drugs a felony the way it was. We need the proper leverage to get these folks into treatment. And frankly, the misdemeanor or gross misdemeanor from a lot of the prosecutors I've talked with is not going to work all that well, certainly not as well as a felony. And that would be a Class C felony punishable by five years in prison and a $10,000 fine or both. Mm -hmm. So then you have Proposal 2, which I'm going to go all the way to the other extreme, the lightest, uh, if you want to call sentencing in this, which is a carrot with basically no stick. And this is a proposal by Democratic Senator uh, Moncardinger. It says drug possession is a public health issue and not a criminal justice issue. Substance use disorder is a public health issue. Criminal activity that is associated with substance use disorder is criminal activity. And we have to be able to separate the two. Simply drug possession should not be a criminal activity. That's a bottom line there. She basically wants to decriminalize possession, Mm -hmm. uh, make everything a personal amount. And they don't describe what a personal amount of illegal drug would would be, but that's what she would want. And basically, she's following recommendations by this uh, huge study that was done by the the Substance Use and Recovery Services Advisory Committee. So then you have the two proposals basically in the middle. I call it a carrot with a stick, but if you don't eat the carrot, uh, Senator Solomon explains his bill this way. If one is convicted of possession, the judge cannot sentence to jail, only to treatment. And it's only when somebody refuses to do treatment that jail would be imposed. Also, jail cannot be imposed if treatment is not funded. If somebody cannot afford the required treatment, they cannot be sent to jail. So basically, he's saying that the court could vacate a conviction if they follow through with substance abuse treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't agree to treatment, you're going to jail for no less than 45 days. And so there was and the, and the fourth proposal, similar to Solomon's, and it's proposed by June uh, Robinson, uh, Democratic June, uh, Senator June Robinson is the sponsor. I believe that the bill that I'm sponsoring strikes the right balance between compassion and accountability. And she's basically going to make it a gross misdemeanor, more time in jail, up to a year in jail. But the treatment has to last 12 to 18 months, and it creates a pretrial diversion program. Well, all these things require massive amount of funding, but none of the bills in the current form have any funding attached to them. And so Bob Cooper, representing the drug courts of Washington, called them out on that. It comes down to funding, 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 and it cannot be zip code dependent. If you are in hump tulips, you have to have the same opportunity for treatment as you have in downtown Seattle. Funding, funding, funding. This has to be paid for. 
And we go back to that same old issue, what if people don't accept treatment? Um, uh, Dan Templeton is the police chief of Everett, and he describes what's been going on since the current law, which required police officers to uh, offer two times treatment before a citation is issued for a misdemeanor of drug possession. Here's what's happened since this new law took effect. Out of 398 referrals for treatment made by Everett officers since engrossed Senate Bill 5476 went into effect, I'm aware of only one person who voluntarily accepted the offer for treatment. Wow. (laughs) That's the definition of failure. Well, and and then he's the one who talked about city of Renton. The mayor of Renton also talked about that. Basically, he said that in their department, only 2% people of the people that were basically held uh, for possession accepted offers of treatment so that's a big issue and another big issue final issue on this is that there have been huge issues with the state toxicology lab because drug testing is very imp- important in this all these bills and the drug testing has been extremely so slow so solomon says that would need to be addressed. This bill would also require tox lab results within 30 days because if we don't get results of drug tests, it's hard to prosecute any charges. And we do understand that will need to be funded by the legislature. So does... You get uh, all that, Dave? All uh, yeah. those big four? Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't see much hope uh, after this report because it sounds like nobody's, nobody's uh, changed their mind. Uh, Senator Dingra still believes that this should be decriminalized, even though that's apparently been a, a colossal failure for both the, the, just the cosmetic appearance of the community when you have all these people using out in the open and the, the drug victims themselves, and there doesn't seem to be any stomach for the funding that would be required to provide treatment for all these people. So uh, are we going to go through yet another session where nothing changes? Um, We don't. Well, they this is where they have a clock going, because this is a sunset on this uh, current law that ends in July. So that's really pressuring. If they they can't kick the can down the road on this one, Mm -hmm. they have to come up with something, anything. They have to come up with something. Remind me again what happens if they do nothing. What where where does the law go? It goes back to what the Supreme Court said, which basically says our drug possession law was unconstitutional, and therefore we don't have one. So you can so carry just, no matter what. It's it, you're you're free to do drugs wherever and whenever you want, as much as you want. Yeah, yeah, personal amount. Just yeah, as long as you're not selling or handing it to somebody else, you mm-hmm. can be sitting there with a thousand pills of fentanyl just sitting there on the street. Nobody can do anything with it. All right. Matt Markovich, thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Dave. All right. Good for them. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft, a Washington, D.C. ice cream shop. Make sure everyone who walks in, whether they've got money in their pocket or not, can get a cone. Every week we just put a new flavor together, a different flavor waffle, different flavor ice cream, some sort of garnish, you know, just to warm it up and make it nice for the people that come in all the time. It's called Everyday Sunday. It's located in the Petworth neighborhood of D.C. and serves ice cream by the scoop, sprinkled with a little extra kindness. Its owner, Charles Foreman, tells Fox 5 TV he can tell when a visitor wants a treat they can't afford, so he just gives it to them for free. I live in the neighborhood, and sometimes there's a there's, there's kids in the neighborhood or people in the neighborhood that may not always have it. And um, I figured... 
what could it hurt but to give somebody that may not be fortunate as I am. So, you know, I, I didn't start it for anybody to recognize it. But one day, I, the, one of the little mommy circle that comes in on Friday after school, she recognized me giving one of the little kids in the neighborhood a free cone. And then she gave us $100 and was like, make sure you keep doing it. Touched by that gesture, Foreman posted about it on social media, and it started a chain of giving. Customers began handing him extra cash to cover ice cream for people they didn't know. Amid the persistence of crime in the D.C. area, particularly in the Petworth neighborhood, Foreman says he's decided he wants to brighten up the neighborhood. This is my community, and I don't want anybody to be excluded. So I want to make it smart enough for me to remain in business, but I also don't want it to be unapproachable where you can't come and bring your family and get ice cream. Above all, he says he just wants his ice cream shop to be something positive for his community. And it's time for our exclusive Tuesday morning briefing from Washington, D.C. and New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold. Of course, the State of the Union is uh, tonight. Do you get to, to sit in the gallery to watch that, David? I have. Not this year. When I covered Congress, I did. And, and it's pretty cool. As, as, as uh, much as we get used to this, it is a pretty cool thing to see that entire government gathered in one place. I will confess to you. I'm always a little worried when Joe Biden steps in front of a microphone for a long speech. Uh, I mean, not, it's not that he can't read the teleprompter. It's just that, you know, sometimes he does uh, fumble the words. Uh, but what do you what does he have to what's his mission tonight? What is what does he have to to say to do something about his poll numbers, which I know are on the minds of the White House staff? Yeah, I think that their objective there was a, po- a Washington Post poll a couple of days ago that said that, you know, more than six out of 10 Americans didn't think Joe Biden had accomplished very much, despite, I have to say, a, a fairly consequential, whether you agree with him or not, a fairly consequential presidency. And I think Biden's mission tonight and probably for the next year as he gets ready to run for president again is to tell everybody what he did. You know, he made he, they passed all these bills like the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure bill. They're going to take years, maybe decades to sort of fully have their impact on on American lives. And so he's going to try to remind people of what he did. You know, I don't know if he'll be successful or not, but I think that's his goal is to say, look, I've done a lot. We've done a lot. You know, don't go backwards now. I think there isn't there a rule in politics, which is tell them what you're going to do, do it, then tell them what you did and do it over and over again. Yeah. And and he's done that. He's been, you know, for the last few weeks, he's been going to talk at like bridges and tunnels and other things that, you know, are supposed to remind people of what he did, but no one paid attention to any of those things. So maybe tonight people pay attention. Yeah. Now, tell me about this poll, which indicates that even among Democrats, uh, let's see, what did they find? Just just 37 percent of Democrats say they want him to seek a second term. That doesn't sound good for him. No, I mean, but a lot of people said about Trump in 2020. I mean, you know, in 2020, he had a really strong showing. I think that Biden will run again just because there's not really anybody else out there who's, yeah. you know, an obvious backup plan. Somebody like Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders. I think any Democrat would tell you those people are, would, you know, start out way behind where Biden is now. So if Biden wants to run, I don't think anybody's going to stand in his way. I'm still trying to figure out what the um, 
what alternative Republicans are proposing for uh, balancing the budget? Last time we spoke, uh, you said that they had come up with nothing. We've had uh, another week since then, and I, I still hear the same complaints. Uh, Kevin McCarthy says you got to talk with us. Uh, you can't just you can't just close your door and not talk with us. And yet. I don't know. I haven't seen a single thing from McCarthy except that we're not going to touch any of the programs which turn out to be the most expensive programs in the government. So do we still have any clue what it is they want to see as part of a budget deal? No, they're in a they're in a bind. They they people like the idea of a balanced budget, but they don't like any of the sacrifices you'd actually have to make to get to a balanced budget. And so I think they're going to try to hold that for as long as they can without naming a specific price, without saying you know we want to cut this or that. You know, is this going to be what you just described? Why won't they come talk to us? How can you be against talking to us um, without saying that you know there's no negotiating position? You know, some Republicans have talked about cutting Medicaid or Medicare and Social Security. I think Democrats would be, you know, over the moon if Republicans right. really push that. But that seems insane. And Trump himself has been pushing back against that. Okay, so but I, there are, I don't there, think I think there are some of the true believers on the Republican side who really do want to cut Social Security. Right. I mean, they, they've been they've been there for years, but uh, the leadership has usually put the kibosh on that. So is there any sense that that might change? I can't imagine it would. I mean, think of think of all the people who've gotten blown up by doing that. From George W. Bush, you know, trying to privatize Social Security, Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney, you know, generations of Republicans who made, you know, austerity, cutting Medicare, raising the retirement age part of their pitch, and it never works. I mean, the person who's had the most success as a, as a Republican presidential candidate is Trump, who ran on the opposite, that we should never, ever touch Medicare and Social Security. Republican voters don't want that, and Democrats definitely don't either. Yeah, okay, well then, let's go on the Democratic side. Their solution, of course, is to raise taxes, preferably on the rich, but for some reason that never seems to work. So, uh, when the now Biden's got to present a budget pretty soon, right? Is that going to include a tax increase? I mean, I think Biden's budget, especially in a time where he doesn't control both houses, is going to be pretty theoretical. So I don't see him proposing a tax increase unless it's something, like you said, that's designed just for messaging purposes. We should raise taxes on billionaires or something. You know, I, I don't think that for Biden there's any point in having a political fight about raising taxes when there's no chance it will happen. Yeah. By the way, what is the um, what, what's the tableau going to be with uh, with uh, Kevin McCarthy and uh, Kamala Harris behind the president? Will there be eye rolling? Will there be any ripping up of speeches? What do you think? I mean, after Pelosi, I sort of feel like McCarthy is going to feel pressure to, to you know, Pelosi had done so much to sort of show her displeasure without saying anything with Trump. I think McCarthy is going to roll his eyes. He won't stand up. I think he'll be, you know, he can't just sort of sit there the way that John Boehner did or Paul Ryan no. did. You know, I think he's going to have to make some sort of fuss about it uh, just to support, you know, because he's got a lot of members who want him to. Right. So, well, I mean, I expect the, you know, the stand up sit down thing to be it'll be like a seesaw between him and uh, and Kamala Harris. But you don't think uh, you think he will do a little uh, eye rolling or, you know, head shaking or anything like that? I do. Yeah. And I think to also you remember the, the uh, Joe Wilson, the congressman from South Carolina, who yelled, oh, yeah. you lie. At, I well, mean, you think I there'll think, be yells from the audience? Hecklers? I think there'll be like 10. I mean, if you're Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene and you don't yell from the audience, I think you, people will think less of you. So I do huh. expect some more performative yelling. That sounds like the makings of a prop bet. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's betting on this. 
<laughs> I'm sure somebody take if they're offering you a bet on Marjorie Taylor Greene, definitely take yes. She will yell. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, um, of course, yours your specialty is uh, Donald Trump's finances. Are there any updates on that? I haven't heard much since the release of the tax returns. That story didn't seem actually to have uh, many legs. I didn't I didn't see any useful tax tips coming out of his tax returns, and, and I haven't heard much about uh, about his campaign. So, what's the status of that? Well, you know, legally for Trump, the, the latest sort of turn has been that apparently the Manhattan District Attorney is now focused back on the payments to Stormy Daniels, the hush money payments that happened before the 2016 election. Yeah. And that, that is, you know, people call it the zombie issue. It's been dead and alive and dead and alive, maybe alive again. Um, you know, for his campaign, it does seem to be starting off in a pretty lackluster way, both, you know, in terms of the media attention it's getting and also just in terms of what Trump is doing. He's He's running kind of like a like he's an already the incumbent and just sort of going around having small events. The likely nomination is assured for him. He's not doing big rallies. He's not trying to sort of be the center of attention the way that he was in 2016, either because he can't get that kind of attention now or just isn't interested. Oh, hang on. Uh, Chris has a list of prop bets here. Go ahead. Yeah, David, uh, McCarthy ripping up the speech. You can get in that uh, mention first insurrection or MAGA, mention China first, mention Russia. Yeah, there's plenty you can get in on this if you want to. Length of speech over unders. <laughs> uh, what kind of words is he going to use? How many mentions of this or that? Yeah, so you can totally get in on that. Mm. I bet I'm ripping. I mean, he may even eat it. I think I, I, think I would definitely bet I'm ripping the speech. <laughs> By the way, do you think he's going to have to bring up the balloon? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a winner. I mean, if you're going to, I think that's one way to get McCarthy to stand up is to say something bad about China. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I, if I was Biden, I'd brag about shooting down the balloon. Look, we showed China how tough we are. Yeah, that's yeah, right. I definitely think that, that could be a that could be a breakout moment. I shot that balloon out of the sky, and you saw it fall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I, if I was him, I would definitely do that. Yeah, David Farenthold from the New York Times. Thank you, David. Thanks, sir. Seattle's Morning News. We're coming up on one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It was February 24th of last year. And we were talking recently with Richard Haas, who is the author of a book called The Bill of Obligations, intended as a companion for the Bill of Rights. It's a proposal for some of the things we should all be able to agree on in the interest of undividing the nation. But Richard also has another job. I want to talk to you in your capacity as president of the Council on Foreign Relations and someone who's counseled presidents on foreign affairs for a long time. You helped uh, you helped shepherd the uh, the peace in Ireland. I mean, you've you've been at the the center of the stage when it comes to stuff like this. And I, I know when the um, the war in Ukraine first broke out, uh, you were worried about the possibility of of it going nuclear. What would happen if uh, Russia lost? It's now been what about a year. And uh, it doesn't look like Russia's any closer to victory. How do you see this ending? I don't see it ending anytime soon. If I were a, a betting man, I would think if we were to have this conversation in six months or a year, the map would not look all that different from the current map. I would think that we're, we're basically in for a long war. That neither side is prepared to, to compromise. Neither side is persuaded that time is uh, on the other side, works to the other side's advantage. So for all these reasons, uh, I'm sorry to say, I would, I think this is going to be a long war uh, that, that, that continues literally quite possibly for years to come. Does Russia fire off a nuclear weapon? I think it's unlikely, but I can't sit here and dismiss it. The, cir- the circumstances 
that would one could imagine would be if Russian forces were getting seriously routed on the battlefield, were getting seriously defeated. And in a desperate moment, Vladimir Putin, who may or may not, but may actually have the authority to use a nuclear weapon. It's not clear who or what would, would could stop him, given the nature of decision making in Russia. Could he use a nuclear weapon? Uh, conce- conceivably, I think it's uh, unlikely. Uh, the Chinese don't want him to do it. The Indians don't want it to do it. There are probably people in Russia who don't want him to do it. And at the moment, I don't see his forces anytime soon getting getting in a position where uh, they look to be totally uh, defeated. But I I can't sit here and say there's zero chance of of that possibility. So it's it's one we need to think about. What makes it so hard to take into account is we don't want to anyone in Russia or anyone else to think that having nuclear weapons inhibits us from doing what it is we want to do, because that would only encourage a world of more nuclear weapons in, in more hands. So it turns out to be a, an unbelievably difficult situation. And we're sending more and more weapons in, more and more sophisticated weapons. At what point does this basically become a, a NATO proxy war against Russia? Well, there's elements of that already in the sense that Ukraine is is being supported by, quote, unquote, the West. Almost all the weaponry is coming from NATO countries, but there's not NATO direct involvement. It's supporting uh, Ukraine. We're not supporting Ukraine for conquest of Russian territory. We're supporting Ukraine for defense of Ukraine and potentially for liberation of its of its, uh, its own territory so it seems to me this is this is totally legitimate but you, know, you get it questions you know of uh how much and what kind of arms do we propose do we have to be wary of certain types of russian uh responses so this, this is again this is a, a incredibly i find complicated uh situation that is, that is playing out richard haas the author of the bill of obligations